Welcome to Viewpoints Listeners. I'm your host, Henry Gross. It gives me a great pleasure to welcome co-host Russell Hanby with me. Welcome back to Viewpoints. And what's making news, Russ? No, thanks, Henry. How are you today? Oh, pretty good. It's a nice sunny day and the finals uh, upon us in the AFL and uh, hopefully my team, Collingwood, uh, does all right. I know yours is out of the running, but uh, uh, I'm sure you're taking an interest in the finals. Who would you like to see win the flag at the end of it? Oh, well, I'd like Melbourne to win, actually, but uh, I think tonight, I think the first preliminary final, Collingwood might beat Melbourne. be interesting to see when this is broadcast how that went. <laughs> it will be very interesting indeed, and we'll keep our eyes and ears uh, um, open and listening. Um, what's making news this week? I didn't give you any homework, did I? No, no, we're free of that. Oh, and good. You must enjoy that. Uh, okay, here we go. <laughs> the age, Russell. Sydney Nolan auction where everything must go. How did a British peer become one of Sydney Nolan's greatest collectors and patrons? According to one story, it happened that Lord Alastair McAlpine, a businessman and Conservative Party treasurer under Margaret Thatcher, saw the Australian artist's work printed on a Qantas in-flight menu. Fascinating, isn't it? It is. Yes, and Geoffrey Smith, chairman of the the Oxford House Smith & Singer, said that uh, Lord McAlpine started collecting Nolan's work in the 1960s. He once once owned what was the most expensive piece of Australian art for 10 years, uh, the first-class mark it was called. Now that was before Brett Whiteley's Henri's armchair sold for $6.13 million in 2020. Now, uh, McAlpine bought Dog and Duck Hotel, which he saw on the Qantas flight that you mentioned, mm. and, and that was for a then record price. Now, all 42 pieces, formerly from McAlpine's collection, are up for auction, and every work must be sold, according to the instructions given. Uh, And it spans the period 1957 to 1987, and most of the works have never been for sale or on public display before, but they were sold privately to McAlpine. Now, Smith says all are major paintings. They're not prints or drawings. They're all paintings. And the paintings will be on display before they're auctioned uh, in Melbourne and Sydney. And the auction goes on sale, uh, goes, takes place on September the 19th. So there's some rare artworks all in the hands of one fellow. Yeah, are you going to be bidding for any of them? You'll need a, a little bit of uh, money if you're going to buy any of his uh, paintings, Russell. Yes, well, <laughs> million-dollar price if we look at uh, some of those early records, yes. Yes, they're very interesting. As, um, as uh, the, the, the person said, Smith, who's in charge for Jeffrey Smith, the auctioneer, he said, um, that each work is a riddle. They're not works that you hang uh, and then you look at them and then you move on. You, 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 they're quite enigmatic, aren't they? Yes, they are. And I, I think that one of the Ned Kelly one, I think that's where copies of that made in lots of places, aren't there? You know, you see that Ned Kelly. Is that the one with the helmet and the, yes, the face? Yes, yes, and the A behind it. Yeah, it is. It's an interesting one. I, I, I also think the, well, the three that are on display, uh, there's the Ned Kelly 61 and then there's two others. Uh, I don't know their titles, but it looks like there's a pyramid in the background or a tent and it does look sort of Egyptian because of the ears on the dog. Very interesting, isn't it? Yes, it is. So that's an interesting story to start off with, isn't it? Yeah, and then there's a rooster with what looks like an Egyptian crest on its head, or a chook with an Egyptian... (laughs) I mean, they really are interpretive works, aren't they? Very fascinating. Yes, Yes. he was sort of unique, wasn't he, in his style and uh, what he took. 
Oh, Nolan was. I mean, he's uh, he's one of the icons of Australian art, isn't he? Really. Yes. Have you have you taken interest in his artwork over the over the journey or not? Not especially. I mean, uh, uh, not particularly. I mean, we've had we've got a lot of famous early artists. Arthur Street was another one, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Streeton too. There's lots of them. It's, uh, there was the Heidelberg uh, group, wasn't there for a while there? And yes. Up, up at Monsalvat, was it where they yeah, used to that, hang out? I think so. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I think Monsalvat's still going as a, a showpiece sort of uh, museum and uh, gallery, isn't it? Mm, went there a few years ago, and it's quite a fascinating place to visit, uh, Russell. Uh, you can easily uh, spend uh, a good half a day, three quarters of a day there. There's uh, nice gardens and eateries, and uh, quite a bit of uh, historical art and everything else uh, on there. And uh, as we say, Monsalvat was really the home of artists uh, back at uh, what the 1900s. Going back that way, yeah, I haven't been there for, for decades actually, mm. but uh, it's good to see it's still going, isn't it? Absolutely. Now, the Herald Sun, Russell, what's this um, welfare boost for battlers all about? Well, it's uh, good news, really. Uh, uh, welfare boost for battlers. Uh, pensioners will get an extra $32 a fortnight to help make ends meet, while job seekers will get their biggest ever single increase with $56 more to assist with the soaring cost of living. And from September the 20th, payments, they're going to include indexation and increases that were announced by the federal government in the budget. Uh, so um, the Social Services Minister Amanda Rishworth said that indexation of the payments would help Australians struggling with the cost of living and higher inflation and veterans will also be helped because of that too with, and their families. And the other thing that's going to increase will be income and assets limits. They'll be going higher which means you can have more to before it affects your pensions uh, greatly. Mm. And uh, yeah, so I mean, there's some figures here. I don't know if we want to go through them, but no. they, they go up from twenty to fifty dollars, don't they? Uh, Fifty-six dollars is increasing, depending whether you're a single or a couple or whatnot. But they're quite significant. Mm. Yet, despite that, Russell, the Australian Council of Social Services has called for a higher payment for people struggling with the cost of living. ACOS surveyed 270 people on job seeker, youth allowance and the parenting payment and found almost three quarters said they skipped meals or ate less due to the high living costs. And their Deputy Chief Edwina MacDonald said people relying on woefully low income support payments were were in severe financial distress. So what do you make of the the two things? Obviously it's a good move. Is it a good enough move? Well, I don't think it's ever good enough uh, for some people, is it? Because, you know, there's some people, the, the people on low incomes are, are really struggling, I think, aren't they, with the living arrangements and the food and everything? Oh, absolutely. And, of course, with the interest rates uh, going up and people's mortgages, uh, people in mortgage distress as well, it's, uh, it's a, a pretty tough time for people. But, yeah, the people at the bottom end, I mean, that's a, a reasonable amount of money, but it, they're also got... Uh, a fairly low, it's a low amount in total still, isn't it, when you look at what it actually costs uh, uh, to survive well. That's right, yes. Yeah. So so that's uh, the September 20, on the 20th of September and then March, I think, are the two dates when they go up the payments, yeah, come mm, out. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, um, Russell, Melbourne's plan to find a home for the city for its essential workers. Almost half of the workers essential to Melbourne's city economy, such as cleaners, baristas, delivery drivers and childcare and aged care workers, live more than 20 kilometres from the CBD due to soaring housing costs and lagging wages. Uh, quite a... Um, 
quite a disturbing pattern there, isn't there, in terms of uh, reviving the CBD with, with, with issues such as this uh, holding people back? That's right, and the, 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 the city is still pretty much deserted too on uh, mm. mainly Mondays and Fridays, but I even heard yesterday it was very quiet uh, on the Tuesday. Now, the city of Melbourne has officially defined key workers um, and is stepping up pressure on the state government for action on housing affordability. And they classify as well as the ones that you read out, cleaners, child carers, nurses, chefs, security guards, hospitality uh, workers and retail staff. Uh, they're the ones that are needed and uh, Many of them can't work from home, of course. Mm. And uh, Lord Mayor Sally Cap uh, said, uh, escalating residential rents force workers to live far from their jobs and many, and, and because they can't work from home. Uh, now, affordable houses in the city had a shortfall of, say, 5,500 uh, affordable dwellings in 2016. Now, that's predicted to go up to 23,200 by 2036, the shortfall in affordable dwellings and what's needed. The council has defined key workers' housing um, for moderate to very low income earners and it wants to help allocate rental housing on its own land and is putting pressure on developers to include it in private residential projects. In return, they might get some good planning concessions like heights, uh, buildings allowed, etc. And one of the statistics is that half of the 142,000 key workers are mm. on very low to moderate incomes, and more than 20% of these live more than 30k from the central Melbourne, so they have to commute every day to their job because they can't afford to, to live closer. Mm. And it all plays out to the fact that um, coming in as a commuter, quite apart from an essential worker, is something that's under threat. Uh, whether you're a commuter to work in, in, in any of the areas or whether you're there to um, visit and enjoy our city and spend in our city. It's, uh, it, it's struggling, isn't it, in, in a lot of ways, the CBD? Yes. Uh, COVID, of course, was the big uh, killer of everything and it hasn't returned. And I still see even some, uh, even on, on Monday, once the station, the suburban station car parks were full uh, where I was, but uh, every fifth place was empty again yesterday. So people are not using the trains as much, are they, to go into the city? Well, I think a lot of people are sort of, um, what's that word that they use for it, uh, Russell, where they do part-time on-site and part-time off-site uh, work? You know, you work from home and you work from the office. I think more and more people are doing some days of that, aren't they, from what I can gather? Yes, I think so. And some of the employers are trying to bring in, I don't think all that successfully, uh, more more days there, but uh, it's that flexi time, isn't it? Or mm. yes. Sort of a blended working arrangement, isn't it? Yes, yeah, that's yeah. right. Of course, we can't do that in schools, can we? No. no. Certainly not primary <laughs> schools. No. <laughs> the, kids have, the kids have to be here. I mean, we well, we've got to, we did the remote learning we had to during COVID, but uh, it's never as successful as the face to face, is it? No, and I mean, it just logistically doesn't work. You've got children have to be cared for, parents have to go to work, and if the children are, you know, um, under fifteen or sixteen, they really aren't old enough to be left at home and and, and to their own devices, and especially primary kids. So, parents quite obviously found uh, remote learning stressful on a lot of reasons and one of them was it cramped their work as well as uh, the stress of trying to teach or help support the teaching of your of your children so no no so in certain uh, all of the essential services work you've got to be on site don't you yes you do now we'll take a short break russ can you hold the line you've done it every other week can you for <laughs> how many years can you do it again <laughs> 
Oh, well, I'll keep, keep it going. Yeah, I'll, I'll be here. <laughs> Good <laughs> idea. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosek, and I'm in the middle of What's Making News with co-host Russell Hanby. How are you going there, Russ? Back again? You didn't go away during the break anyway, did no, you? No, no, I'm still here. <laughs> what, do you, what do you actually get to do in the break? It's not that long a break. Do you ever get to do anything? No, well, that break was only about a minute and a half, so I didn't have time to do much. <laughs> no, normally I, don't. I just look through the papers at the next item. That's what I usually do. Absolutely. And the next one's an interesting one because, um, and I, I won't foreshadow it, but it's one where uh, the, there's a related issue for schools. I mean, if the police are having trouble with this, uh, we certainly do with social media in a variety of ways. Um, so I'll let you... I'll let you introduce it. It's an interesting one indeed. Yeah, from the Herald Sun, fake images trouble cops. Um, now, what it is about is that AI-generated child abuse material is being posted on social media platforms, sparking fears it will hinder police tracking down real victims. And uh, such images are illegal, uh, according to the eSafety Commission of Australia online watchdog. Um, now, investigators can tell the AI images were not real at the moment, but in the future, it may be hard for the human eye to distinguish. And there's potential there for predators to generate sexual images using photos of children from social media. So it's sort of Photoshop, but it's done with the artificial intelligence, so it's uh, very... Uh, could work in a sense or, or hard to predict, hard to discern it. Uh, also, it could uh, use existing abusing material to create new poses so that the, the previous victims are in fact re-victimised, uh, if you like. Now, Ms Inman Grant, the eSafety Commissioner, said mm. all, all child sexual abuse material, whether real, fake or AI, was harmful as it normalised the sexualisation of children. And the images look very lifelike uh, and it's uh, appearing on social media platforms like Twitter. And this is also where they get the, the original images. Um, so that's uh, the not bad story, isn't it, about AI? It uh, can be too effective for good things, but also for bad. And, and currently, uh, the facial recognition tool, which is the police want, that identifies real child abuse victims online, is banned here due to privacy concerns, but it is used in other countries. And I see there's a, an, a, an accompanying article about that in the paper today. It's used by the US to identify child victims. So apparently, there's a, um, I see there's a, a trial on now. They want 100,000 photos of children to send in voluntarily so that they won't have to then look through pages and pages when there's uh, child abuse to find the, they can immediately, the like DNA will come out straight away to see if there's been abuse. Mm. Yeah, no, look, it's an interesting one. And as always, Russell, you've got those competing uh, positions, the good uh, versus the potential bad. And yes, there are privacy issues. And of course, the concern is that um, they, it could end up in the wrong hands. And if it happens to do that and that sort of stuff does happen, then you've got another problem. But at the same time, uh, despite the privacy concerns, uh, the Australian Federal Police uh, person there, officer, former police officer John Rouse, said that, uh, quoting him, police officers are screaming out for this sort of technology. And uh, without it, it's, it's very interesting to see how, how you can um, eradicate it, Russell. I'm not sure. 
I don't know. I mean, I know even a lot of schools uh, that when they do their online newsletters, they don't have that many photos of the kids uh, for that reason, you know, that they can be sort of taken off that picture and manipulated in big ways, you know. Mm. Of course, there's Facebook and everything else that's out there where many kids and people are on. And uh, an area that we struggle with at times, Russell, is the use of social media, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, Primary school age children are using that, you know, uh, privately. And, of course, the backwasher, that, well, they shouldn't be. They're not old enough uh, legally. But the backwasher, that is that there ends up being issues and conflicts. And then they we get them back at the school, you know, your kids are this and your kids are that. And, of course, you can't ignore it because, A, there's, a, there's an issue there, a well-being of the kids. And, of course, it segues back into schools at times because the backwash is that it's uh, mates or friends of mates at school that have suddenly fallen out over the use of social media in ways which young children um, have no idea on how to handle it properly. And it's fairly widespread out there, Russell, the use of Snapchat, TikTok and Instagram by children under 13 and in some cases well under 13 yeah, and you have to do a bit of research to find that out and that's quite alarming isn't it yes it is and I suppose children who knew nothing about this their friends will soon show them what it's all about uh, it's one of these things where you can't just be ignorant of it and they soon find out don't they and, and then it becomes a very secretive thing uh, locked away in their rooms and uh, it's a worry too isn't it you absolutely know? and of course the big tech companies are rolling things out at 100 miles an hour all the time and there's no international rules and regulations so you've got this potentially in many ways wonderful technology AI uh, and the internet uh, and and it's subject to such abuse and the harm that it can cause is profound that's right and it's gone just beyond bullying or cyber bullying yeah. you know where the kids it's all these other things similar to what we've just been talking about yes. yeah i did see a very interesting uh, on sky news last week about artificial intelligence i don't know if you saw that it was no. uh, it was about in the early evening, it was an hour thing, and they even had the, the author Jeffrey Archer, so Jeffrey Archer uh, interviewed, and they got one of those bot things, you know, to, to write mm. a book for him, and, it, and he was he was incredulous by how how close it was to what he his way of writing, you know. Oh yes, and uh, so you've got all of the. Uh, things from fraud to fakery that um, you know we've we've still got to address, even though it's out there. So look, it's not going away. It'll actually expand, and the, and the benefits of it are really quite profound across many many sectors of life. But but without without regulation and rules, um, you can see the damage it can cause. And. That story hasn't ended yet. That'll go on for many times. The odd spot's a fascinating one this week, Russell. Yes, on a different topic. A hole in a door at a cathedral in England is thought to be the world's oldest cat flap. <laughs> the small... <laughs> if you think, oh, did they have cat flaps in those days? Well, apparently yeah. they did. The, yeah. small hat, the small hatch at Exeter Cathedral dates back more than 400 years and leads to a cavity behind a large clock. An historian, an historian says that the hole was cut in the 16th century in an attempt to get on top of rat infestation. 
The rodents were attracted to the cathedral by the animal fat used to lubricate the clock. And a bishop cut a hole in the door to allow his cat to catch rats and mice. Records show payments to carpenters for work on the cathedral around 1598. So it's uh, certainly 400 years or more. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. And the fact that those records exist from the carpenters gives us the opportunity to check it out. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting little... An interesting little story. Ross, that takes us out for this week. Um, have a good weekend, and um, we look forward to catching up with you again this time next week. Yes, we look forward to it. Absolutely. That was Russell Hanby, co-host for What's Making News, listeners. Mm-hmm.